Welcome to the Old Galway Diary podcast. Each week, Tom Kenny and I, Ronnie O'Gorman, write a column in the Galway Advertiser. Before it goes to press, we contact each other and share what is filling the page that particular week. This podcast is that conversation. And I would add, we enjoy talking to you and would appreciate if you would give us a rate and review on the Apple Podcast app. Thank you. Hi, Tom there. Good morning to you. On a wet winter's morning, it suddenly got very cold. Uh, lovely, mild weather. Well, it's very autumnal out there, yeah. Isn't it just, you know, we've had a lovely, yeah. mild September up to now. But um, anyway, on with the show. So, Tom, this week, what have you got in store? Well, uh, I'm talking about Augustus John, really, coming to Galway. Uh, A cartoon is described, really, as a life-size working drawing of a tapestry or a wall painting or a mosaic or something like that. Mm. The first um, cartoon ever is ascribed, usually given, to uh, an artist called John Leach who produced one in 1843. But I'm talking about one that was done by Augustus John in 18, or sorry, in 1915. <clears throat> uh, Augustus John, he was a Welsh-born artist, one of the great painters of the last century, really. Uh, he painted an awful lot of Irish uh, literary figures like Bernard Shaw, Yeats, O'Casey, and so on. Um, and he was a great friend of a man who was known as Fireball McNamara. Francis McNamara lived in Doolan. He had a kind of a commune there. He believed in free love and that kind of thing. He uh, he had a little hooker or a glow tug, I'm not sure. He and Augustus John came to Galway in this on this boat from Ballyvahan one day. And uh, they stayed in what was then known as Gas Tank Flaherty's Pub on the Docks. This <laughs> later became known to many people as Brennan's. <laughs> gas Tank. That's brilliant. Well, yeah, well, if you think of it, the gas tanks were exactly across the road from them, in fact, yeah. uh, that supplied the gas. Anyway. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Kitty name. McGee was the girl in charge of this. John mm-hmm. And John, Augustus John, fell in love with Galway. Uh, since the beginning of the First World War, he had been kind of wandering around <clears throat> a bit aimlessly, trying to find <clears throat> conditions which were right for him to work in. And he obviously felt uh, that Galway was the place to do this. Uh, whatever it was about the city, it certainly captured his imagination. And he began actively to look for a house to live in. And he found one at the top of Prospect Hill but it was owned by the Mercy nuns. And they were deeply concerned about his morals or maybe his lack of morals. And uh, so they got the bishop to negotiate with them. And he finally, it was agreed that he could lease the house there. Uh, It was known as St. Patrick's House. It later became known as the Union Hall, just at the top of Prospect Hill. But anyway, it was agreed he could lease this on the condition that he did not paint any nudes in this on this premises. Quite right. Uh, 
Yes, dreadful tart. I know, it's very tart. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Anyway, the, he, John, he, went, he walked around the streets. He was constantly observing. He was studying. He was making sketches and drawings. And then he would hurry back to Chum Street, is what he called it, uh, which, in fact, was, of course, the main road to Chum. He was making drawings and occasional paintings. But an awful lot of this, what he was doing, were sketches, preliminary kinds of sketches. And then he began to worry a bit that uh, having a sort of a bearded Englishman sitting around the docks making drawings during wartime, he could be seen as some kind of a spy. And he began to get nervous. <clears throat> so he left. He went back to the UK. But he, he had a plan in mind when he was leaving, and he wanted to execute a, a major, big dramatization of, of the city of Galway and everything that it represented to him. I'm thinking of a vast picture synthesizing all that's fine and characteristic in Galway City, a grand marshalling of the elements. It would have to be enormous to contain troops of women and children, groups of fishermen, docks, wharves, the church, mills, constables, donkeys, men from Ireland, widows, hookers, etc. Uh, and perhaps with the night sky and illuminated in the light of a dream, this will be worthwhile. <clears throat> he loved painting people, and especially the people in Galway, <clears throat> particularly clad men and women. Their drapery is often very pleasing. One generally sees at least one good thing every day, uh, but the population is greatly spoiled now. 20 years ago, it must have been astonishing. I suppose this is an old refrain that we can still use today. But yeah. he, anyway, his imagination was really fired up uh, when he was in Galway, but it soon, it soon began to fade. And uh, the spirit of the place was kind of slowly leaving him. So... He began to worry, as I say, that the people are watching him and so on. So he started, as soon as he went back to the UK, he started to work on a large cartoon. It covered, he covered, in fact, 400 square feet in a single week. He was trying to get down all of his impressions and memories of the city and its people before these memories clouded over. So it was a kind of a composite picture of an ideal Galway, a visionary city, really, locked in his imagination. And this cartoon, in turn, then led to a very major painting. It's 40 foot long. It's a triptych in three parts, entitled Galway, which is in the Tate Gallery in, uh, in <coughs> London. And so that is what my image is this week. It is mm. of actually of... Um, Augustus John working, he's up on a ladder, which just goes to show the height of the actual drawing. And uh, it looks very exciting. And it's exactly what the cartoon originally was designed to be. Uh, as it happens, <clears throat> in at this weekend, uh, the Galway Cartoon Festival opens this week and runs all through next week as well and uh but they are featuring in the city museum an exhibition which will feature some of uh augustus john's works and drawings and included in it is a reproduction of uh this triptych 
this would be the first time it's ever been seen in Galway. And I, for one, I am very much looking forward to seeing this composite view of Galway. So that's the image I have. I've also included yeah. one of uh, one of his drawings of cladder women. Uh, and you can see from the long flowing lines that, you know, that he loved simply. He, you can understand why he, he found these women uh, and their drapery very romantic and I, ideal looking, in fact. Yeah. No, Tom, that's, I, I, I'm, I'm very intrigued. I know a little bit about Augustus John, actually. In fact, he was a great friend of Robert Gregory and was probably the best man at Robert's and Margaret's wedding in he London. Was, yeah. uh, he yeah. came over to stay not only with McNamara in, in a style, but he, he, he stayed in Cool Park regularly. And uh, he was a great, um, you know, he was a constant stare there. And I think he was, his company was enjoyed, although he was, he was quite, you know, rude. Sometimes he, he pinched people bottoms and things like that. But he shouldn't have done that. And um, this kind of thing, but they all loved Augustus John and he would had a penchant for climbing trees, the highest possible branch he would hold on to and sway backwards and forwards on some of the great trees in cool and he'd be called down for supper was ready mr john mr john come down at once but um he really was a much loved character and uh, was very involved with the with um, McNamara's family, but that's kind of another story. His, his I'm very interested in that uh, cartoon, as you call it, of Galway. Um, now, I saw an exhibition in the Tate Gallery many, many years ago when I was in London uh, of the two Johns, his sister Gwen and uh, he, Augustus, the two Johns were exhibited together. And there was a very interesting contrast between the two of them. Whereas Gwen was a very fine, gentle artist of, of real, real um, ability and, and just atmosphere in her paintings. Augustus, of course, was rather strong, powerful, uh, strong faces, strong costume, and uh, an uneven artist when you see it all a kind of a, a retrospection, but nevertheless, very fine artist, as you said, one of the champions of the last century. Um, oh, yeah. His time in Galway was, was um, he was one of the women kind of loved him, mad, wild women, loved Augustus John and McNamara. And one woman I know that used to go out with him uh, was Molly Cusick-Smith, the late Molly Cusick-Smith, the woman I have great admiration for because she was a genuine aristocrat. She was not a phony like many, like many uh, sometimes people of that um, uh, class pretend to be she was a genuine aristocrat and uh, you know re regarded herself as such and walked around the town and spoke in a loud voice and uh, anyway she was she was a very fine woman and I enjoyed her company very much but the um, there was a there's a book written um, two flamboyant fathers you're probably aware yes. of that by Indeed. <clears throat> Nicholas, um, I've forgotten her second name. Diva, Diva. Divas, well said. Yeah. And uh, she spoke about Molly Cusick-Smith going out on the boat with the two men. They'd go up to, to Spiddle looking for Pachin and women, and she would 
being there enjoying the trip as much as the men did in her big pullovers and things like that. So I met her one day in the street when she was, she's sadly not with us anymore. It's a pity because she was such a colorful character. And I asked her straight out. I was very brave. I said, yes, I said, I just read the two from, did, did you pose nude for Augustus John? And she looked at me. She trembled with rage and anger. And she said, how dare you? How dare you ask such a personal question? And I did what any good journalist did. I turned around and ran because I was ter terrified she was going to hit me with her shopping. But she didn't. But, but you're right to, to look again at Augustus John. I feel there's an exhibition waiting to be had of Augustus John in Galway in the west of Ireland. He certainly did a very large, very large picture of Ennis Diamond, which I've seen. Uh, it's very, very large, about as large as the cartoon you're talking about. Um, it's a pity. He, he, how finished is that cartoon, Tom? How? how... I have never seen it, Ronnie. Is it? Oh, uh, yeah. But the, yeah. the nature of cartoon is it's like a sketch mm. or a drawing, a preliminary yes. plan, an outline of the painting. Yeah, and that's what it always would be, but it looks wonderful. Now it may be that um, it was on this whatever he was working on. Um, I don't know, was it a wood panel or canvases or whatever? No, just paper. I'm certain. Oh, paper. maybe paper. Which is maybe that that that. Yeah. Well, then he wouldn't have finished the painting on that. So yeah. Uh, but yeah. It, it's it it's by nature a preliminary sketch. Yes. Well, it was displayed at the taste during that exhibition, that retrospection between the two <laughs> friends. Um, yes, I, I'm almost certain it's on paper, stretched and uh, uh, oh, covered with some kind of resin to make it as strong as possible. I think he yeah. painted on paper because he had no money. He was a, at that time, 1914, he hardly had any money. He was barely established, uh, even though he was an up-and-coming artist. I don't think he sold much of his works at that time. But um, that's just brilliant, Tom. I'm dying to see it. Uh, that's very, very interesting. Um, yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Um, yeah, well, as I say, I think there is an exhibition in the offering there of Augustus John and Goldwyn. I think to be very, very... Yeah, great, great, great. Well, we might try and persuade somebody to take that on as a project you know let's see let's see what is out there you know you never know okay tom that's great i'm really excited. so what is in the diary this week? <laughs> well i i i'm i'm finishing up the the whole new york scene and the irish emigration there which i felt uh just had to be finished off really not to let go and i i, I mentioned last week that you know from the 1840s to the end of the, that's the 19th century, more than 3 million people had emigrated from Ireland as a result of the famine and the sheer collapse of any kind of social support for people. So more than, you know, extraordinary that 3 million people should have left. Now, some went to Britain, of course, a great number went to Britain. The majority went to America. And very often that majority stayed either in New York, Boston or Chicago, mainly New York. And of course, it was very, very difficult. They literally went to the slums. They were detested. They were uh, ridiculed uh, in cartoons in newspapers and magazines with their ape-like features. And of course, they were Catholic. And America 
was and still is today largely non-Catholic, should I say. There's a great number of religions there, but largely non-Catholic, very suspicious about Catholicism, especially at that time. And they did feel, you see, the problems are exactly the same. They feel that the Irish pouring into their ports and pouring into their areas and they would work at anything to get some kind of subsistence. And of course, the, we have the problem today of uh, long distance lorry drivers and things like that. I mean, if they allowed too many immigrants to come in and they would take, they would work for far less money than what is paid to the regular driver, then there's a lot of opposition to these people. Why should they be allowed to come in? There's always that you know, tension between immigrants and the people established there, uh, no matter how kind we try to be, no matter how charitable we are, there is that difficulty there. Anyway, um, the great thing that brought the Irish together uh, through the end of that 19th century and at the beginning, the first 40 years of the 20th century was a wonderful political, well, an extraordinary political movement called Tammany Hall. I'm sure you might be familiar with it. Last week, I tried to say that the Irish began to gain some kind of respectability by uh, fighting in the American Civil War, mainly on the Union side, some you know, on the Confederate side. That gained a certain amount of respectability. But now they were there in huge numbers, ready to be exploited. And they were exploited by the Democratic Party in New York in particular. This was Tammany Hall, a society of St. Tammany. I don't know where they got that from. Are, are, to more appealing to the Irish immigrant, they called it the Columbian Order. And this was a huge political machine. Uh, as I said, uh, brought together by the Democratic Party. And uh, they divided the, the town hall, the, the, the uh, city of New York, up into wards. And the, the man that ran the ward uh, really had huge influence. He'd come around, he might pay for the funeral if there was somebody to be buried, all for loyalty. And uh, they got this massive vote together. And they began to effect change. And uh, one great character there was a man called Al Smith. Uh, he was a, a Tammany Hall hero. His mother was Irish. I, I, I don't think his dad was, but his mother was Irish and a first generation immigrant. And uh, he ran successfully thanks to Tammany Hall. And he was governor of New York four times. He even ran for president in 1920. Uh, hadn't a chance in hell. But nevertheless, he showed people what can be done. So Tammany Hall gave a bit of pride to the Irish, got them out of the slums, got them toward, to look towards housing in the suburbs, where it was far more uh, beneficial to live there. The schooling was more accessible and, you know, really was the lifesaver, I would say, of the massive Irish groups that had heretofore clung together in the slums. Now they were up on their feet they had a voice, they were speaking out at City Hall, they were making progress and slowly but surely, you know, exiting that awful slum area of the five points, never to go back there. Now, a lot of this I learned from a wonderful uh, museum that my daughter brought me to last time I was in New York, the Tenement Museum at 97 Orchard Street. What happened in Orchard Street was that um, 
this big block, this big tenement block, uh, was built in 1863. I'm still trying to keep around to the 1860s. It was boarded up in 1935. So for more than 70 years, it remained absolutely untouched until finally it was bought and it was going to be developed. But as they took down the hoarding and the boarding and took down the partitions, you know, this apartment block uh, just represented itself as it was in the 19th century. And uh, luckily, the New York uh, City decided this is a museum we can't let go because we've had such a history of immigration. So... um, they, they set up a committee and for years they researched the people that came there. A great number of people went there and it's 72 years, something like 7,000 people from more than 20 nations passed through its rooms. So, you know, there was massive work to be done. And today it, it is really superb. I must say I was very, very taken with it. And of course, there was an Irish family. And uh, to me, to my mind, this was the, you know, you, you can't really deal with a huge uh, multitude of people. Uh, you know, it's very hard to tell the story of a big multitude of people, but if you tell the story of one or two, it, it becomes manageable. You know, I always think that, um, you know, the diary of Anne Frank, you see, you take the story of one girl and she told us all about herself And then we hear what happened to her and her family. And suddenly the Holocaust, you know, takes on an understanding. Suddenly we can see glimpses, even though we don't want to see it, we see the true horror. And this was a story of the Moore family. And uh, they had seven children, actually. Uh, Only four reached uh, full maturity. And they, they, they came to live for a brief period in 97 Orchard Street. And uh, the story they tell in particular was that their child, Agnes Mary, she was only five months old and she dies from malnutrition because Tammany Hall, yes, it had power, it had political power, but it was corrupt. As you can imagine, it was deeply corrupt. And uh, there was a terrible, terrible scene. You can imagine how desperate, desperate mums were to get fresh milk into the, you know, into the inner sanctums of New York City at the time. And unfortunately, uh, there was a terrible racket where the, the, the milk that was sold was milked from sick cows. It was doled out in uh, unhygienic vats. And then they disguised the rottenness of it with all kinds of ammonia and chalk. And they sold this. And even though babies died and there was a huge outcry, Tammany Hall somehow that must have had some, you know, some interest in selling of milk because a huge demand for milk in a big city, somehow seemed to cover it up. And this was an almost consistent scandal that went on. And the story of the Moore family was them dealing with their little five-month-old Agnes, who who died, and uh, the anguish of that. But it it certainly is a, a magnificent museum, and I really recommend if anybody goes to New York to make time to see it, you you have to make an appointment because there's a German section and an Italian section, and uh, so the and of course the Irish section, and it's it's a most moving thing. Just 
if we can picture then, you know, in the 20s and 30s, the Irish are moving out of the slums of New York. Um, they're moving into the suburbs. They're becoming respectable. Uh, they still had this, you know, there's still this religion thing was hung over them that, you know, they're Catholic. And the, there was an anti-Catholic bias uh, very strong at the time. I don't know if it still exists, was very strong at the time because then along comes Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, 1960, forward on the Democratic ticket. And he was very anxious to avoid any association with Tammany Hall because it was known to be corrupt at that time. And the Republican Party derided Tammany Hall. And anybody who came from Tammany Hall or stood up like an Irishman to make a point, they would deride him and say, ah, he's only from Tammany Hall. Ignore him. Kennedy was very, very astute to avoid any association with that. And as you know, he denied that uh, the, the Catholic Church had anything to do with what he believed in. He would never say it in public. He was a, he was a Catholic. He said, yes, I am a Catholic, but I don't speak to my church on public matters. And my church does not speak for me. And uh, you know, he, enough Americans believed him and he won just by a narrow majority, majority, really. But today, I'm glad to say the um, the Irish in America are a huge success, as we know. They, um, they're one of the best educated of all the ethnic groups. They're one of the highest house ownership of all the ethnic groups. And they're certainly um, one of the most prosperous of all the ethnic groups in America today. Surprisingly, they don't vote uh, Democrat anymore. They vote Republican, generally speaking. But that's what happens. And even the poor old Moore family at the end of the museum, you know, it just shows you that the first generation didn't really make it. And the second generation found it very difficult. But the third generation, uh, the, the original uh, of the original married couple, their great grandchild, one of them became a New York City policeman and another worked for the New York City Fire Brigade. So, you know, they did achieve, they did climb out of the very difficult beginning that the Irish immigrants had in America. So I'm, I'm ending it there, Tom. I, can't, I You know, I just feel I have to end it. Um, and it's a remarkable story. It uh, is, yeah. You know, it has been written about, it has been made into movies, especially The Gangs of New York by Scorsese. Um, and it, it just says something for the great spirit of the Irish. And they became very nationalistic. They became very... Um, proud of their country. And, you know, the Irish American today, I think they would agree they're American first and Irish second, and very, very uh, loyal to Ireland. And it was as if, you know, when they were here living in Ireland, or their ancestors were so badly treated during the famine, so despised and so, you know, just given no hope uh, by the government at the time in Ireland. But when they got to America, they did suffer as well. But they did find their Irishness and they did find a loyalty to Ireland. That was very interesting. It was almost as if they had to go away to find it. And as I said last week, even fighting in the ranks of the American Civil War, they had an Irish flag. They were allowed to fly this wonderful green flag with the golden harp. And of course, nowadays, 
you, you will meet, you will see lots of tricolors uh, in America flying on the lawn beside the Stars and Stripes, again, showing pride in their achievements and pride of being Irish in America. So that's it, Tom. That's, that's all I'm doing. Okay. I'm exhausted. Okay. Yeah, I know. I'm exhausted by it. So will we will we leave it? Will we leave You're it? Okay. Yeah. Until next week. So running. Okay, Tom. Take care now. I'm looking forward to that exhibition. Yes. Oh yeah, me too. Me too. Okay. Bye, Tom. Take care. Bye.